Hello and welcome to Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your host, Robin Hunnicky, and I'm here today talking with Tyler Siegman of Darkest Dungeon. This is an amazing podcast. It's a longer one, so strap in. He's talking a little bit about the experiences he's had on his developer journey, the ways in which he's been able to triumph despite setbacks, and the value of resilience. A really fantastic conversation with a true champion. So happy to have you here today. Welcome. Welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Thank you. It's it's good Lovely to see to you. I see you in the pandemic times. <laughs> I know. I I panicked like half an hour before the show because I said, "Oh no, is there video?" And so I showered and shaved and because <laughs> I you know I just assumed audio and then and then I panicked for a minute. But anyway, uh, phew. Well, you look fantastic for our audience. I would say that um, the ball cap and the beard are are working for you. <laughs> I have a face for radio. <laughs> So uh, the show is pretty straightforward. Normally, we just start with asking you uh, the basic question of like, how did you get into this crazy business? Like, what was young Tyler's life like? And were you always a gamer? Were you interested in games? And did you did you deliberately start on this quest? Or was it something that you fell into? It's always nice for people to sort of hear how you got started. Yeah, Um, let me see. I'm trying to I'll try to do the Cliff's Notes version. Um, Yes, always have been into games. you know, really across all, all mediums. Um, I was born in 74, so I like saw Space Invaders in the arcade and Atari and Pong at home and stuff like that. Like I remember when we got the 2600 and it was just mind blowing and went to arcades, but it was also like board games and um, family softball in the park. Like I was just fascinated with, you know, play, I guess. And um, and then my I had two older brothers and they got me into D D pretty young. So that that was really fun and that remained pretty important for a long time. So yeah, just kind of a game fanatic. But um I I, I think I first consciously started like admiring game developers when I was a teenager, just because there were certain games I played that, you know, and I would read the credits and but even at that time I wasn't really I didn't really see a path to making them, I I guess. Um not yeah, I don't know. It was just different. You know, there wasn't really like a funnel um, to educate people and get them in game dev. And I didn't know anyone who was, you know, really making these things that I kind of had my sights on another career because I'm really into airplanes. And uh, and so I I was a total game fanatic. But, you know, in retrospect, it's one of those things where like I should have I should have maybe realized earlier, you know, like, wait, I'm in all my spare time. What am I doing? You know, gaming, making games, playing, you know, trying to figure things out um, game wise. But then you, you pursue a career, you know, because you think you want that. And it took it took a while to realize, wait, no, I think I love games more than airplanes, actually. Um, so let's talk about airplanes for a minute. What did you yeah. like about airplanes as a kid? And I know you're so really passionate about airplanes. So what's yeah. the big deal with airplanes? Um. You know, I just was fascinated with them. And I remember like my my dad would take me to the airport probably just to uh, 
like he was not into airplanes at all. I think it was probably like a, oh God, what do I do with the kids for two hours sort of thing? Take him to the airport, watch the airplanes take off and land. And the, and the, I guess the first time I remember being consciously like really into them was fifth grade. I had to do a big exhaustive research report on something, which is funny to think of like how exhaustive could it have been in fifth grade? But I remember spending hours and hours pouring over these books, uh, these airplane reference books and and that my whole presentation was just regurgitating stats on airplanes. <laughs> like this airplane weighs this much, this airplane can carry eight missiles, this airplane, you know, and um, and then, but more specifically flying them was, was, you know, I saw Top Gun, I was all ready to go, let's shoot some evil communists down, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be Tom Cruise when I grow you up. You also get to ride a motorcycle if you ha if you're I Tom know. Cruise. So it's like it's like yeah. a double whammy: motorcycles and airplanes I and know. girls. I mean, geez, that's like all the things at once. It was pretty aspirational, yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know, like, so being a pilot, you know, has always been attractive. And so I went to school for aircraft engineering, and I kind of wanted to be a test pilot and. I did become an aircraft engineer, not a test pilot, although I am a pilot. Wow, but, um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you'd actually did that. Yeah, yeah, I did the whole thing. I went and, you know, did a hard education that, you know, like it's, I remember, it's funny because I'm really into, you know, like, I don't know, the business side of things now, like, you know, with running a, uh, co-running a studio, you know, you, I've become way more in, into entrepreneurship as I've like, I don't know, realize that that's the gate to being able to control how you make your games, I guess. Um, and I remember though in college, and I'm sorry for these weird tangents, but I remember- No, but the like, tangents are the whole point, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> I remember like kind of looking down with a little disdain at like the business majors and, you know, and I remember totaling up that the, where I went to school, like the, the engineering curriculum was like 210 quarter units. And I remember like business was like 186 or something. And I was like, yeah, they don't even, they don't even take as much school. And, and they know after a couple of years, you're like, wait, I did it the stupid way. <laughs> like I did it the hard way. What was I thinking? Um, no, I did love, and I still do love the subjects. Um, but, and I still fly, but I worked as an engineer for eight years. And, and then um, what I was, I do, what was I doing in all my free time designing games, trying to figure out how to break into the game industry. And I eventually just, um, well, I tried for quite a while, actually. So it's not like one day I got the light and then boom, I got a job. It was more like I actually tried to switch for years. Um, but that whole realization of um, it was really hard, like cognitive dissonance to like go to go to university for something and then be like carving out a career for yourself. And then suddenly realize like, whoa, what if I switch careers and I never do this again? Like, was that all wasted time? You know, the, these yeah. are things, I guess, when you're a warrior, you think about. <laughs> well, how how um, old were you when you really started thinking like, okay, I'm climbing the wrong ladder? What, what age were you then? Mid-20s. Yeah, say. same. I was, in, I was in AI. So I was oh. doing robotics and, and, and AI oh. and I was getting a PhD and then I got all the way to the end of the PhD and I was like, oh crap. I actually oh, really man. like hanging out with game developers. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I dropped out like just before finishing and it was the same thing. Like, what did I just do? I don't regret it now, but at the time mm -hmm. I remember feeling like maybe this is a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, in the moment it's easy to be really black and white about things about like, like I was saying about waste of time, you know, and, and now in the fullness of time, I can say, wow, you know, I got, I got a great education. I learned a lot. I, I got to work at some cool places. Like it, it, a lot of the skills transferred, which really surprised me, I guess, I guess because of my like specialty, which is like systems and stuff. 
Um, so a lot of things like did carry over and it's also just part of your life story, you know? And I think that like being constantly worried about like, I think it's more important to be forward looking, you know, like, like this, these are hard things to see at the time, but, um, now I don't regret any of it. I mean, like I could have taken a different path and sometimes I admire, or especially back then would admire like hearing stories from people that are like, like, I remember hearing so, a story from someone, how they got into game design and they're like, my brother had a job at a place and they were like, we need game designers. I was like, well, I guess I could try And then he got a job, you know, and it's like, and I was sending resumes and applying and couldn't get interviewed for years, you know? So, um, but I think now in retrospect, you know, that's just part of the journey. And I think everybody's journey is different. So like, I didn't become a full-time paid game designer until I was 30. Yeah. For me, it was 32. So, and we're all the same age basically. So yeah, Yeah, you're a year older than I am. So same exact experience. I actually think also just like at the time, it was really hard to know people unless Mm -hmm. you already were a hobbyist. It was really going to GDC as a researcher that I was like, oh, wow, I could talk to game developers and they're actually Mm -hmm. really cool. That was what really did it for me. Did you break in cold or did you actually go to some conferences? Um, No, I think your wisdom is like super straight on. I should have gone to conferences. I would read Game Developer Magazine and I would um, read about GDC, but I don't know. I had like, I didn't have a lot of spare money. So, and traveling out for just the chance to like, in retrospect, that's absolutely what I should have done. Um, But I know I was trying to break in cold and and really couldn't. um, And I knew some people in the tabletop industry because I was making tabletop games on the side. That's kind of how I got my little start. But I only broke in once I... um, effectively through networking. Yeah. Like I, I was at this pivotal kind of like point where I realized I needed to change my career. And, um, I took a class at Vancouver film school that they had just started offering game design courses. And I took a class and basically the short story is that the person who taught the class was a design director at a local studio. And he was like, wait, you've already made games and you already have an education and you, you know, and you've led projects. And he's like, why didn't you come work here? And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. But, but previous to that, really, I had like, I would peruse like Gamma Sutra and just fire off resumes that, you know, but it was the networking that was key. And I think like, you know, if I could go back in time, it would be like, go to GDC and go to, cause um, yeah, you just kind of need a way to, to like distinguish yourself from a pile of other resumes sometimes. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because at the time I did it all through scholarships, the IGDA. Mm. So as a scholar, I was able to attend both GDC and GDC Europe. And that was like so great. But it was still like had to sleep on the floor in other people's hotel rooms. And like, you know, you're just like hoping that you can get by on conference food and eaten free cheese. Right. (laughs) Just trying to to meet as many people as you can, making your own little dorky business cards and handing them out and just being like, I'm a researcher. I like video games. Hoping yeah, you don't want to pay the $40 yeah. uh, boxed lunch fee when you're yeah. like, trying to break in, right? <laughs> you're just like, oh, can I have that extra pickle? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you you were making tabletop games. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that because I know as a systems designer, I mean, yeah. obviously Darkest Dungeons is system-based and like you're a systems thinker and it's very clear. So like, did you start out thinking about systems um, like complex the way that they are in, in DD or were you were you more interested in like simulation, like stats and like airplanes were obviously a stats influence on you. Where, where, where were you hitting it in the, in the sort of um, board game space? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think like the, like the first design, like, and this will lead to the board game stuff, but the first like conscious design work I did is probably like most people, it's like 
D&D campaigns like tweaking rules or, you know, making scenarios. And then that kind of leads to, um, I just think I gravitated towards mechanics like early rather than the story side. Like I think I, I aspire, aspired and maybe still aspire to like be better at the narrative side, but, but I just love mechanics and that's where I feel drawn. Um, and so like, you know, it's like, oh, uh, instead of rolling a 20 and doing double damage, what if there's a critical hit table, you know, like a million people have done. Um, and so I did that. And then like some early Commodore games, I remember like, you know, had level editors, like this war game construction kit, which was really cool. And you could design units and design maps. And then, um, there was, yeah, like an early EA, like one of those folio games that was like a adventure construction set and racing destruction set or like all these different ones. So I think like, um, it was through, I guess you could say modding that, you know, I got my first taste and then, um, and then that kind of led to, yeah, during college is when I first tried to make a board game, um, or, or card game or both I, I did. And I think I'm trying to think back, like, why didn't I try programming stuff? Um, I mean, I, I was just learning programming and, uh, you know, as a core of a tangent, it was like included in my aerospace education, but it's like Fortran, like learning Fortran. You know? yeah. so, um, so I think I saw board games as like, no one, like no knowledge stood in the way of being able to make a functional prototype. And I, and I still find that really attractive. Like, sure, you, you might not be able to make it look good and, you know, you might not know what you're doing, but yeah, it was just like, hey, it. yeah. And the cost, you know, you didn't, you didn't, uh, producing them would, would be expensive, but just like prototyping, you know, I mean, it's just materials. So I think that was attractive. So like I, I had played, I used to love like the old Games Workshop Talisman game, which is basically just a roll and move and draw a card and see what happens. But it was yeah. so thematic <laughs> and you know, a million cards in it. So I, I think the first big board game, I, well, and like most people, I tried to make a giant game first, you know, cause you're like, I want to make my magnum opus, even though I have no other op opi, <laughs> like there's, <laughs> there's no, you know, it's a little early to try to shoot your moonshot. But, um, so I made a talisman like game with all my own mechanics and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, that led to, then I, then I was a working engineer. So it was after college and I, I made a, I made three little non-collectible card games at the same time, basically. I don't, I don't remember exactly how that happened, but I was just inspired by different themes and I made these, um, and magic was really big at the time, but I wanted to do a non-collectible collectible because it's like a little more, you know, achievable. And I remember yeah, back it's a trader system. You don't have to worry about all the expansions and everything. Yeah. You can just focus on balancing the main deck. Yes. And actually, oh yeah, I think one of the things that inspired me there is even though I was like still early in my engineering career, I was sending off random game design resumes because at that point I was already like in interested. And I got, I got called up for an interview at Hasbro in uh, like New England and I, and they actually flew me out there and I was like panicked. And I remember I brought that giant um, talisman like game to show. And I was like, it has 384 monster cards and <laughs> 176 item cards. They're and they're like, that sounds expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and one of the, the guys interviewing me who was like, you know, presumably a project director or something, he said, you know, what's really hard designing a good game with 55 cards. He's like, you know, because if you have no limit, you just keep adding fluff, you know, you or you keep adding stuff and hope it gets good. Um, or you hope people are so bamboozled that they don't know if it's good because there's just so much stuff. Um, and that really stuck with me that like, oh yeah, with 55 cards, you know, first of all, he was, you know, obviously saying 55 cause that's a production sheet. That's the, that would be a sheet of what they'd manufacture 
card games. And so, you know, if you can fit in one sheet, not 1.5 sheets or two sheets or God forbid, 12 sheets. Um, and I, and I, you really realize like, oh man, everything has to have a purpose and it has to play a role. And so I challenged myself to make these non-collectible card games. And I guess I was just like super creatively inspired at the time. Cause like I said, I, I did them all close enough together that I, I put them together and sold them all as a trilogy. And, um, and so these like, forgive the stupid, but one of them was called witch hunt <clears throat> and okay. that's, and that's because on that Hasbro trip, oh yeah, this, this actually, the timeline does make sense. It's hard, you know, you get old and the, <laughs> but um, that Hasbro trip was in New England. And while I was there, I toured the Salem Witch Trial Museum. Oh, cool. And and then I was like, oh, you know, it'd be a good game is uh, where you're accusing each other of witchcraft, but no one's actually a witch, but that doesn't matter. So you're planting evidence, you're falsely accusing, and then your goal is to get everyone else's um, villagers hanged, I guess is the proper word before yours. Um, so it's very satirical kind of dark game. So that witch hunt, and then I really liked Forrest Gump. And so I made a game called Shrimpin, which was, <laughs> which was everyone is a shrimp boat captain and you're trying to catch the most shrimp within seven days. And you're like, there's different shrimp and holes. And so you're trying to like, for them. <laughs> So like this one, it's a very productive shrimp and hole. But if everybody goes there, then you're, you know, then you're all splitting. <laughs> yeah. So it, uh, and then you can like sabotage each other's boats and I don't know, it was, and then the third one, which is probably my favorite is Night of the Ill-Tempered Squirrel, which I had just watched. <laughs> um, I, I hope you watched... release all of these again. They all sound Oh amazing. man. Well, I'll get to. The, the problem is they weren't very good, you know, but I guess that's what we expected. Um, I mean, they were very much products of the time too. Maybe like I was, I was enamored with cheap ass games um, that James Ernest, I don't know. He's, he was, he's still active and still designing games, but he designed like a ton of these games and his whole thing was you can buy them for like six bucks because they're just cardstock and he assumes you'll have dice and pawns at home. Um, now the cheap ass games, were very well, like Kill Dr. Lucky is like probably the most famous one that most people know about. Um, but he has, you know, he has a great like sense of humor, good design. And also they were put together graphically really well. And I think I just looked up to that. I was like, okay, there's no reason. Well, sorry, the reason skill, but I could try to make a game like that, you know? And that's where these three came from is they were all like, um, and I did clip art, like I was a clip art wizard, but this is like 1999. You're like trying to, yeah, like, I'm trying to think of the cheap-ass game is that I have. It, it's the zombie one where you're falling Oh, apart. give me the brain? Yeah. Th that might have been. There's one where you're all zombies at a fast food restaurant, and there's only yeah. one brain, and you have yeah. to share the brain to yeah. get your customers. <laughs> yeah, I have that still in my collection nice. somewhere. Um, so here's the, here's the twist. Oh, okay, now the interpret squad I have to finish, and then we'll move on to more exciting things. But... I had seen that movie Ed Wood with Johnny Depp and where it was unclear, like if Ed Wood knew all his movies were terrible or maybe he did know they were terrible, but he just loved it anyway. So, um, and Ed Wood was a director of like monster movies in I don't know, the sixties, but they were like the super low budget, you know, like schlocky, whatever. And so this, in this game, you're all trying to film a movie and, but you're trying to make the worst movie possible. So like you, you there's cards for actors and plots and titles and special effects and they range from one star which is like really terrible like direct to betamax 
to five star, which is like, you know, Oscar winning performance. And so you're trying to build a movie of the worst components possible and trying to fa- uh, pawn off your good components on everyone else. <laughs> and, um, and it was fun and like thematic. And then like at the end, you, re- you re- read your movies by like flipping the title. And, and there's a lot of, it's all a hidden thing because you play cards face down and then you have to try to remember if like, so if I play a card oh. on you, you, you can probably assume it's, it's a good card, which is a bad card for you. And then you can do things to swap it back, but maybe I am tricking you and I put the, you know, anyway. And so it's all a big surprise and you read them at the end and you get to read these dumb movies. But, um, oh, but the, the thing is, is they, um, I sold them PDFs as PDFs. And this is like really da- the dawn of that. Like, I don't think there was drive through RPG yet. Um, like, you know, it was back when Elon Musk didn't have hair, you know, that kind of like <laughs> where um, he was at PayPal. That's, that's the reference of like, and so it was before PayPal, I think when I first started, cause I remember, or at least there was a bunch of competitors and eventually shift to PayPal. But the idea, the idea of paying money for virtual goods was like still super mind blowing. Um, yeah. But the reason I did it is cause I, I didn't have any money to produce these games and I really didn't know. I think I had emailed a few companies like, Hey, do you want to look at these? And of course, like, just like now, most companies are like, we don't take unsolicited submissions. And this goes back to your earlier thing, which is the best way to sell a board game is go to a conference and meet the people, publishers there because they can then look at it. But anyway, so I didn't have money to produce and I wanted to self-publish because that was the only way I could get the games out. And I, and I realized that doing it as a, um, as a digital good meant that my cost was only in, in the, you know, the software. Um, yeah. And then people, but, you know, as a business model for a board game, I mean, it's great for RPG supplements, but, you know, pay $5, download these games, print them out, cut them out, assemble them. You know, it, it had a very limited audience, even if the games were good, which I don't think they were. <laughs> so, um, but it was, I, I value that experience so much because it, it like taught me a, a lot of the same lessons that I still am using today about just like, the best way to get some, make something happen is try to like be in control of your own destiny. And, and that, you know, the ceiling was lowered because how successful can a PDF download board game be in 1999? Not very, yeah. but at the same time, the real success, I guess, was like cutting my design chops and cutting my entrepreneurial chops and stuff like that. I mean, so this is like actually something that has, has occurred to me with other guests that we've had who kind of worked their way through some sort of a career and then transitioned into gaming. Um, including Stone LeBrand, who I think is a similar kind of story to yours, like oh, cool. was interested in games, but yeah, was working as an engineer and then, you know, on the side just made a mod of, you know, you know, uh, I guess it was Diablo at the time oh, cool. and just was like, oh, I'll make a card game version of Diablo and then show it to the guys at Blizzard. They were like, what? Why are you no not kidding. working wow. for us? You know, so, so this is, I think it's a really, actually, it's a very common Thing from the past, I don't know how common it is these days for people to sort of cut their teeth on paper prototypes, but I also had mm. a similar experience where I met the game design workshop folks and started teaching in that early on and learned about MBA. And then it was like, oh, the mechanics create dynamics, oh. which create outcomes. And the best way to test them is to do it with three or four people mm. sitting around a table talking. And in fact, actually, three people is really hard to design for, but four to six is easy, is. you know, yeah. and yeah. you learn yeah. a lot about numbers and the way that dice work and probability. And, you know, even just adding a few cards to a deck can really change the way a game feels or changing mm-hmm. like a simple rule about turn order or hidden or not hidden. And it's such a great way to practice making games 
we actually have a class in the in the sequence at, at UC Santa Cruz where I teach that's just focused on board games and oh, cool. also on fit and finish. Yeah, just because it's such an easy way to have a really good collaborative conversation around what makes a design better or worse. You can have two teams mm -hmm. making games and then swap them mm -hmm. and play them and sort of say, oh, this got better when you added X or, oh, this got worse because it felt like it started to drag and there was like a race condition for the ending and it went wrong. And, you know, you can have those conversations about the actual pieces and the actual moves really, really concretely. When you decided to break into the industry from the video game side um, and, and took this class and got hired, you, you probably had had a lot of the the lessons that an early designer would would have wanted. What was the, how did you slot into the system? Mm. Did you just come in as a designer? Or did you have <laughs> a systems designer? Like how did that happen? Yeah, um, it's weird. I think, uh, I guess, it, you know, I got fortunate in that regard with like, um, I was able to land on a project that was still one of my favorites, which was Age of Empires uh, for DS, for Nintendo DS. So this was 2004. And um, and the, so the company that hired me is this company called Backbone Entertainment um, that uh, used to be Digital Eclipse. Like this was the Vancouver studio. Um, and there's a Backbone that was in Emeryville, California too. And Backbone and Digital Eclipse kind of got their start doing like the the like frame by frame accurate emulation that you'd see in all those like midway arcade treasures so it's like they got galaga to you know a frame by frame accurate you know and and then would bundle those up and sell them and then um they were kind of gaining momentum and starting to get original ip projects and then um related to that i guess is they were just um getting interesting work for hire and yeah basically i got thrown in as the lead game designer on this age of empires game uh, which, you know, sounds super glamorous in terms of lead. It, and in a way it, it was, I got really lucky, but it was, it was actually kind of a byproduct of, there was another couple projects at the studio that were kind of like the, um, that's where everyone's eyes were, you know, cause they were original IP and everyone was really excited. Well, actually one of them was a, uh, original IP and the other was, this is funny. This is, was in, do you remember the Nokia Engage? Uh, oh, I totally oh, remember the Engage. Talking it from the side. Yeah, the like taco. Um, <laughs> so they were working on a, um, it, there's this tabletop RPG system called Rifts. And so they were making like a 30 hour RPG of Rifts on the Engage. Wow. Um, yeah, this was crazy because Nokia was funding these huge projects. So Nokia, it was somewhere around like a, I know the next project after that on the Engage was a $2 million budget. And this uh, Rifts was probably like a million or a million and a half, which yeah. back then was like real money. Yeah, um, because that was a significant budget back then. Age of Empires for DS, I think had, um, like I wasn't in control of the, the money side at that point. I mean, they, I didn't, they didn't show me anything, but I think I found out it was somewhere around like a $600,000 budget, which is not much, like even back then. Um, and so the point being, there's like these hot, exciting, like, toys that I want to play with, but they had this work for hire gig on this and um, the design director who I'm, you know, thankful to, the, to this day, um, Trent Ward, he, he's like, well, you've already designed board games and you love strategy stuff. So like do this. And um, it was, it was just an amazing project. I mean, the, you know, it still remains like one of the most fun and, and one of the ones that I'm definitely most proud of because I think it like turned out fairly well. Um, and that's just due to the team. I'm not like claiming credit. I'm just saying, but it, but the weird thing is I felt like I didn't know shit. So I was like, yeah. oh my God, like 
I, yes, I've made a couple, you know, I made witch hunt <laughs> and now I went to a squirrel and, and I, you know, shrimping. and I, and shrimping, you know, and I've played a lot of games, but, um, but it was an interesting learning experience. Cause basically I just cranked away on this thing and, but I had this real fear that like, you know, really the whole project that at some point the design director would walk in and be like, what you're fired. Um, <laughs> And later, imposter syndrome, me, that's what that's called. Tyler. Oh my God, I know. But it like, it made sense then. Why do I still have it now? Damn it. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, we all do. It's actually a big <sighs> secret. Shh, don't tell anyone else. Otherwise, they'll start to be compassionate for this. I know. It's like, <laughs> if everyone realizes they can do this, then everyone will want to do it. Um, everyone should do it if you want to do it, by the way. They're, they're, I, I think that <laughs> that checks out. I mean, I had the similar experience in, in my first couple of titles, and it always just felt like, Someone's going to knock on the door and say, you don't know how to do game design. And it's really about the passion, right? The passion for systems and the passion for design. So you were there and I know you probably worked on a couple of things there probably before, before moving on. Yeah. What, yeah. Was, what was your path to getting kind of solo? Cause like going from that, obviously you'd already done like a lot of work on yourself and then you're in this mm -hmm. sort of studio culture what did you just like someday one day wake up and be like, okay, I got to do my own game or like, how did it happen? You mean like kind of how did, how did Red Hook happen sort of? Yeah. Or like, like in terms of solo, you mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you must've at some point just decided to just like go off and do stuff. What, what? Yeah, well, well, it was weird because, you know, getting my start was the real by myself. Um, and it's kind of weird because like, I think like, maybe it's like a nature or nurture thing, like how you learn, I think still has an impact. Like I still feel most comfortable basically alone in a room, just trying to figure stuff out or maybe with my, you know, good business partner, Chris at Red Hook. But um, I find large projects challenging because I got my start just like staring at, you know, just with myself in a paper cutter. Um, and so, but yeah, I think basically uh, Age of Empires was this really great project, did well. Um, then we got put on a Sonic the Hedgehog game, which you're like, yes, this is like dreamland. It was not, it was awful, meaning the process <laughs> was awful. And it was my first experience, like, because I was still, I mean, I guess I was like 30 or 32, but, you know, like, realizing what it means to work with a with an active license holder on something, because the Age of Empire guys were great. They were They were just sort of like, Hey, do this thing. Oh, it turned out good. Cool. You know, um, whereas like Sonic Sega was, yeah. And you really realize like, Ooh, this is kind of hard. Like, yes, it's great to work on a, and I'm not slamming Sonic or anyone in particular. Yeah, I'm just saying just, like, when there's a license, it's, it's it's always, a, there's just so many more steps. Right. Yeah. I think like everyone's dream may, well, most, most game designers dream is probably like to be left alone to decide everything. And then everyone, you know, hold you up afterwards. And, um, and, you know, when you're kind of like, can we do this? They're like, no, what about this? No, this, no. Um, and you know, the, in now in, in fullness of time, and you can say like, oh gosh, if you're the steward of an IP and you're just trying to make sure people don't drive it off the rails, you know, but, um, basically we did a couple more projects there, Sonic, and then, um, this really cool original IP called monster lab, um, that was being funded and published by IDOS. Um, like the, of Tomb Raider fame back in the day, but then they kind of yeah. started having financial problems. And um, this project is one of the ones, fortunately they didn't cancel it, but 
they definitely like went from gonna put you know millions of dollars in marketing to like i guess we'll just release it and see what happens but um <laughs> that always works out midway, so well too <laughs> i know it's about midway through that that i left backbone because um i don't know just like companies sometimes you you feel like you've learned what you can learn there or maybe you don't have the same um vision of where they're trying to go or whatever. And, and um, that can be as much on the person as the company, you know, and I think, and sometimes it doesn't mean anyone's doing anything wrong. It just means, you know, you're, you like your future destination is not the same. Um, in this case, I feel like the, the company was starting to kind of like get the, get the wobbles and you didn't want to be there when the wheels came off. So, um, so yeah, I left there and, and, uh, but, but had, you know, learned a lot, like definitely learned a ton there. And so did you just leave and start your own thing? No, um, I joined a, an, an indie studio called Big Sandwich Games. Um, Big Sandwich. And yeah, Big Sandwich. I'm trying to remember how I even got connected with them. But um, they were a small indie studio in, in Vancouver. So this was 2007. Um, so they were in that uh, back, back in that day. Um, you could... It was still weird where it was hard to come out with your own products. Like you couldn't self-publish really yet. It's coming, but it wasn't there yet. You know, you still had to like go through a publisher and have a cartridge made and get that on the shelves at Best Buy. So um, Big Sandwich was doing a mix of original development and then work for hire uh, for Bioware at the time. Actually, we were doing like, wait, about maybe 20 people doing art outsourcing for Bioware um, in Edmonton and like. Uh, somehow I got connected. They needed a game designer for the for the um, original IP stuff that was uh, being privately funded, and so I started as a consultant there, like basically just a contract game designer. And then ended up becoming a full partner, uh, one of like five. Like I wasn't there at founding, but um, that was the one piece they were missing. They had like art covered, like programming covered, business as far as the partners, and they they um, yeah they brought me on as a partner over time, and I ended up spending about maybe like five years there. Wow, that's great. Because um, then you got to learn the business too, I'm sure, right? That was like totally. the next step for you. Yeah, there was um, the, the guy that was like, so everyone was equal partners in terms of ownership. Um, but really, there was like, you know, a president um, um, named Glenn. And I learned a lot from him as far as like running operations. Um, and I'm really grateful to that and kind of became his, I guess, his right hand person as far as the operational side, because I had... Um, you know, had worked in, I guess, just because of my background or whatever, and I was good with numbers and stuff like that. So, and the other guys didn't have as much interest in <clears throat> operations. So, um, so it'd be like Glenn and I running around pitching things at GDC and then Glenn and I doing budgets and try to, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, everyone was involved in different things, but so I'm, I'm really grateful for kind of like learning that side of, the, of, of things too, because again, they're like so much carried forward to Red Hook. Um, and but you know it was it was tough we had this privately funded so this was i guess my first experience with cancellation or or effectively not making the market um there were these like rich oil tycoons in alberta that were funding that wanted to get into the video game space and they funded this game and um we made it for the ds and like we completed the game and like we're ready to submit the lot check but they never could find a publisher and then Oh, kind of the bottom yeah. fell out of the DS market because like during that time of development, DS kind of went from like the DS market became very bifurcated, whereas like first party Nintendo stuff still sold for 50, 60 bucks and was amazing, but there was no middle market and everything else was yeah. like value. It's like, yeah. 
you know, became like 20 bucks or under value titles. And there wasn't really a market for like a original IP kind of mid, mid core, mid level, you know, um, and publishers are hard and weird. And, um, and so we had this game and I, I think I still have a, I don't know if the cartridge is still around, but it was a Mario <laughs> Kart in the sky basically. Um, but kind of themed like anime, Nausicaa, the winds. So you were like oh. flying these little gliders, um, Mario Kart style. So they basically couldn't get a publishing deal, but had already invested, you know, millions in it or whatever. Um, so then we said, let's port it to Wii because we had just taken off. <laughs> so we did the same thing. We took the exact game, ported it to Wii and like enhanced it. But then by the time we couldn't get a Wii publisher. Um, and then the, the art outsourcing market dried up. Um, so we were there like basically screwed trying yeah. to, you know, watching the cash flow tick down. Um, and, you know, you know, measuring runway by the, by the week, not the month or the year, yeah. you know, and, um, and then we were like trying to pump, I remember, um, running around GDC and like, like the, the meetings you take when you don't know the better person to talk to where there's, they just send the, the publishers send like the underlings and there's all these little cafe tables and it's like speed dating. And then they go, yeah, yeah, this looks really cool. And then they never, ever think. Yeah. It's I'm not jaded. Uh, no. My no, stomach hurts thinking about it. I've had the experience myself. <laughs> and it's funny because I have a really clear memory of looking over and there was Jamie Chang trying to pitch Eats, which was like the first clay I game. I remember this um, time, yeah. And so this was somewhere around, you know, like, I don't know, my timeline might be a little off, but um, so like. It's right anyway, around the but, GFC, like 2008, 2009. Right yeah, around. it had to be somewhere around there, like maybe, yeah. And anyway, what ended up happening is we weren't getting traction on, and and again, like if this is too long-winded, I'm sorry. Um, no, it's just, totally fine. Okay. Um, we, we just couldn't get like a publishing deal. And back then, like you still really needed a publisher to front the money. Well, because we had no money. I mean, we had maybe a hundred or 200,000 in the bank, which is significant, but not enough to actually make something, you know? Um, so we ended up, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact sequence of events, but I had an old game pitch. Like we were working our way through game pitches. Cause you know, you take one on the road, it doesn't line it. What about this one? And we, and pretty soon you've written 10 pitches and, um, you're, up, you're just like, does anyone have an idea? And I had this idea for a game about, it, um, dragons where you're the dragon instead of like the knight being the hero, the dragon is the hero. And if you look at it from the dragon's perspective, it's, it's pretty messed up. Like everyone's trying to take your stuff, yeah. you're just trying to like <laughs> sleep, you know? Um, and there's all these annoying humans everywhere. Um, and, and then I, uh, worked with, so Glenn, you know, the, the president of big sandwich, like we riffed on it and then we're like, you know what, let's put this pitch together. But I was like, I was so tired of the pitching. So I just started prototyping and I was like in game maker, just cranking, like, I don't know. It's like when, and it's still hard to like capture this, but when you have a really like good idea and you kind of see how it fit together, like you can build something pretty fast. It's when you really don't know and you're just exploring that, you know, it's, it's, it's calendar time is important because you just need time to think about it. But within about 30 days, I, I knocked up a prototype um, that was like playable and was kind of fun. Like people around the office were actually playing it and then would play it again. And so we took that prototype on the road. Um, God, how did this work? This was like the most painful administrative thing ever, but we actually met with Steam or Valve at GDC, like 
and showed them the game directly. And they're like, yes, we'll put it on. And this was back when kind of like there wasn't green light and um, Steam was still a, a closed ecosystem. So just having them agree to put the game up was not a guarantee of success, but a guarantee that like people will see it. Like, you know, people are going to see this game and it'll have its yeah. chance. Yeah, it was um, a big gate. If you could get through that door, it was really huge for people. And it made some people's careers, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm super grateful to. And I can't remember if that. Um, nope, I've got it. I've got it backwards. That did happen, and at some point they, they agreed to put it on. But what actually it was is we showed the pitch of the prototype to Sony. That was it. Sony had just started this um, pub 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 fund they called it, which was trying to fill the gap between where traditional publishers weren't sure how to get involved in indies because basically XBLA was just hitting like Summer of Arcade, like those early yeah. stuff where, yeah. you know. Um, like Braid had probably just come out, right? Yes. Like that was right at the yeah. beginning of that time. Yeah, I remember that very clearly. And all of a sudden people were like, wait a second, maybe you don't need a publisher. Um, and it was really the digital distribution that, you know, changed that. And, and of course, in Microsoft's initiative of being willing to pick up indie games, you know. Um, and so Sony had started this thing and where, so basically they looked at the prototype, they liked it, and they agreed to, pay upon completion a certain amount. I think it was 500,000 for the PS3 version and 250,000 for the Vita version. But the trick was upon completion. Um, but it was a pledge, like, you know, we signed a contract. And so effectively we had a $750,000 ghost budget, you know, which is like, if we can make it there, we will make at least that much. Man, and what a grind. Uh, think about how unfair that is really. It's such a terrible deal. <laughs> You know what though, but like at the time it was the only deal. And um, so, but yes, it, it and I see, you know, it, it did help in the sense that it, it promulgated, I don't know, I probably haven't said promulgated ever, but it, is that even, yeah, it, it helped inspire the creation of games like, like ours, like Horde, um, the game's called Horde, H-O-A-R-D, Dragon's Horde. Um, but now ensued the most crazy bureaucratic thing I've ever seen happen. And I, I have to give pure kudos again to Glenn, the, the president there, which is we found this Canadian crown corporation, which is like a government weird thing where they're like import export people, <laughs> like not game people. And it was like, look, we have this U.S. contract that says they'll pay us 750K if we deliver our product. You know, it could have been O-rings or widgets, you know. Um, and so they... Basically, we worked with them and a bank to create a bond yeah, to that it. would pay us money on the guarantee of the Sony mon money coming. And it yeah. took six months of pain. What Meanwhile, while we're developing, and so the irony is, and it took like endless, you know, contracts and insurance and, you know, government agency and bank, like imagine a government agency, a bank and a game publisher all trying to make something it makes my head hurt just yeah. thinking about those those three groups of people in one email chain around all the paperwork. I remember walking by the conference room and it would the table would be covered in printed out contracts and Glenn would be in there. And Glenn's an artist by trade. Like he doesn't even want to be doing it. And he'd be in there just trying to like connect all the dots. So the funny thing that ended up happening is like we finally got the money about one month before we shipped. So <laughs> yeah. we had so we had to survive all that time on like I don't know. I think we went without pay for quite a while yeah. and, you know, but, but it, we made the game, it came out on console. Then we brought it to steam and it was, it was an indie game. And that like was the same exact, like everything about horde to, to darkest dungeon just carries over. It was like, you know, we got to find a way to bootstrap and fund it ourselves somehow. 
we're going to bring it to steam. We're going to, you know, and so, um, all that was transferable too, but it was also, um, it turned out to be a good game, like, which like, I'm not shy. I've, I've made some games that are just didn't really weren't fun, you know, or were like solid six out of tens or whatever. Um, yeah. And this one, you know, it, it was really fun. I, I still think pretty nostalgically on it. Um, Do you think that was because you prototyped it and like you had just this like motivator of like, okay, I have to keep it simple and I have to get it done so that it's pitchable mm -hmm. because there's a lot of stories out there like this, right? Like Rock Band, when it first came out, Harmonix had made many games and they had always been reaching for these really lofty goals with music and gaming. And then when they finally got the Guitar Hero contract, it was like, we're mm. printing this plastic guitar and we need a game to go along with it, right? And like, they had to produce the game in like eight months or something. Oh, no kidding. Crazy. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And their other games had been very exploratory, but not very sales worthy. They hadn't really sold or picked up. And so yeah. then they had this huge hit with Guitar Hero, which no one expected and then of course there was the terrible thing that ensued where they didn't actually own the license and then had to make up rock band after that this whole rock band guitar hero wars but like when i asked like what was it i think they did a post-mortem at EGD, egw one year at gdc and i said it was because we were forced to do the the bare minimum shippable thing and like get it done so do you feel like when you look back at horde that you were like okay i the constraints were a win for me I think the constraints were a win, but I think bigger than that even. So yes, sorry. I think the prototype was important because um, it's really easy to write a pitch, like not a great pitch, but it's really easy to write a pitch that is basically we'll figure it out later. Um, and that is game development is the figuring it out later. Like that's what separates a finished good game from ideas, you know, that you share in a coffee shop. And so it's, it's hard because you, you have to get money in the old days. You had to, and maybe a little, not so much today, but you had to get money on, Hey, imagine dragons and stuff. We'll figure <laughs> it out later. Whereas this time, like we, yeah, we actually built something. So I think, um, what I'd say is the, uh, lack of obstacles to actual developing something. I think is really key. And this ties back maybe to that paper prototyping stuff. Like I'm, I'm a huge proponent of like, there will be unlimited obstacles you could, you could construct for yourself or that other people will construct for you. Um, but the beauty of game development, like now is you still have like at your fingertips, you have way more tools than have ever existed. And yes, there's competition, but there's always been competition. And the bottom line is, no one could stop you from sitting in your room and making a game to like starting a game tonight. The thing that's way more likely to stop you is your own fear, uncertainty, whatever. And so I think like in this case, uh, you know, fortunately that prototyping worked out. I mean, sometimes you try prototype, like I've made a lot of game maker prototypes that I've abandoned because I just can't see where to take it. You know, um, I think in this case, just having the confidence that like we, and it wasn't just me. I mean, other people were involved, so I'm not trying to, but I think like having something that you could say, okay, now imagine we dress it up and make it nice and add features. Um, you know, it just gives you like a roadmap. It's so helpful when you don't have an artist trying to tell you that it needs to look beautiful at the same time, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the, one of the hardest things I think for, for early teams is that you make a lot of throwaway art and you kind of yeah. chuck a lot of stuff to see what will feel good in addition to what the mechanics are like. I'm truly, I truly believe that if you're prototyping mechanics and you want them to feel juicy, you have to put art and sound and animation and 
But when you do that, you are just burning money and it's a very expensive way. It's, to, it's to tough. I mean, I think we got lucky. Like the reality is like, even though we had a prototype, um, most funders, at least at the time, could not see what it could look like. And we got really lucky that um, there was, a, there was a, a gentleman on the game evaluation group at Sony. So he was just like, um, and his name is Nick Sutner, and you may know Nick. Yeah, I don't know. I know Nick. <laughs> Nick is awesome. Um, and uh, Nick was one of those people that saw the gameplay and then could envision, oh, yeah, like if you dress this up, it's going to be good. Um, and I think we got really lucky because, like, most publishers or other people, like, they see just programmer art and they're like, we can't market this. And it's like, well, yeah, of course not. But we're trying to just, yeah. you know. Um, Especially so at I, that time. I think that was actually the milieu was that like you had to have a, you, I knew a lot of people that pitched and I was even involved in projects before I took my first job in the games industry. I was involved in a couple of MMO pitches and they were all about the animatic and like spending all this money and time on a video basically of what the game might look like when it was done. And I just remember thinking, this is so backwards. Like, and also you're promising something that you don't even know is going to be the end, end result that it was like, yeah. well, they're never going to play a prototype. They don't even like to do that. So we're just going to make a video and then hope that they, hope that they say yes. So you did this. And then like, was that the inspiration for like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and just like red hook is a thing. Um, no, uh, no, but, uh, so Horde made some money, but not enough money to like allow us to fund our next thing. So it was like a weird thing where like it was successful enough to pay back all the, all the owing salaries and give us a little bit of wiggle room. Um, but what was happening at that time, so this was like maybe 2010, 2011, um, is Zynga was buying up every single, um, company around. Uh, because mobile games and Facebook, sorry, Facebook games, it wasn't even mobile, it was Facebook. Um, that was the smash. So here we were making these like, you know, like, uh, it's kind of like what we do at Red Hook still. We make like, like nerdy games for core gamers unabashedly. This is what we like to do using an old business model. Um, but just like now, where I guess now it's NFTs, but back then it was Facebook games. Um, there's always all this pressure to be like, in the cool new new thing that's coming yeah. to gaming. And um, so it was hard to get money. And so here we are with hard. We're like, hey, it did okay. But everyone's like, well, are you are you making Facebook games? Like, well, no. They're like, oh, well, <laughs> then why would we talk to you? So um, so it's like we, we came on the tail end of the DS market, the tail end of the Wii market. And then, um, but no, what happened is, so we were kind of like facing an existential crisis as a company. We don't have enough money to fund the next thing. Um, we've tried everything. Our outsourcing work is dried up, like whatever. It's just a hard, there was a hard period there, like a couple yeah, years yeah. For, for small studios. Yeah. Um, but it but was also a time of consolidation in the industry, just like now. So I think it's yes. a very, anal it's analogous to what's going on now. A lot of people were getting bought. There was mm -hmm. this hot new hotness in mobile games and free to play. And a lot of people didn't understand if they really wanted to spend the next 10 years of their life making free to play games on mobile or on Facebook at the time. And so it really did feel like if you want to make indie games, you have to find a really safe haven to do it because it's definitely not, it's not, you're not going to be getting, you know, fun, funded by publishers to make, you know, single player story-based games. Like that was not something that was really hot back then. Yeah. And free to play was like really rearing its head. And um, I mean, that was really the, I guess, the start of the free to play um, movement. And I mean, obviously it's here to stay. And um 
So we we got uh, so a lot. I think with that consolidation, a lot of people were or a lot of companies, people, whatever, were looking for capacity. They were looking for shops that they could. They already had projects in mind or whatever, and they just needed like developers. Um, and so a a big player in the in the Facebook market. I, I, what is the statute of limitations on like legal stuff? Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure. I don't know how much. I'm not, I don't know how <laughs> much I can it, say. And but... we can always check afterwards and erase it from the podcast. I like know. We, said it. we can just say, and then <laughs> we yeah. got to the next thing. <laughs> a very big player in the Facebook games market uh, world. Um, uh, basically wanted to buy us. Um, and I'm going to make a super long, painful six, nine month story into 30 seconds. Um, we did a term sheet. We were excited about everything. We, um, they were going to put us on like mid core. So like there was the hypothesis that there was something more than just the casual than just say like a farm bill, that there was something in between that like core gamers on Facebook might play and, and be, because of our background, they yeah, like fashion be. plans or something. Yeah, like um, like I remember back then that like Zynga had made a game called Empires and Allies, which was kind of like a strategy face Farmville <laughs> um, with airplanes and things shooting each other. So they thought that would be a natural that kind of thing could be a natural fit for us, like a, a game such as Zynga's Empires and Allies. Um, and I was into that because I was like, okay, it's strategy, it's a new area. Sure, let's try it out. Also, we don't know where our next paycheck's coming from a little bit. So yeah, that makes know. it harder to say no. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it, so we, we proceeded through everything and drew up the contract, which takes about six months, including due diligence. And unless both parties are like, let's do this now, they can turn it into like two months. But, um, you know, and let, mostly it takes us six, six months. Um, we had a, dinner. I've told this story uh, before to some people, so hopefully, but no one knows me, so it doesn't matter. Um, it got to the point, we hadn't signed the contract yet, but it was imminent. It was within two days, we were going to sign oh, the final wow. version. Like the lawyers were arguing about, I don't yeah. know, like what if Small. someone included a Coca-Cola bottle somewhere, like who pays for that? You know, that Yes, kind of the indemnity insurance. Yes, the <laughs> endless boilerplate and whatever, like the, the actual terms had long been set. And, yeah, um, just red money minutia. Yeah, and I, and I stood to make, I mean, I'll just say I stood to make, I think on paper, like a million dollars or something, which was way Always. more money than Most. I had by yeah. multiple. Um, and so this was like going to be life-changing for me um, and, and, you know, whatever. So we had a dinner, we had a celebration dinner that they put on this mystery company that I will not name. Um, and it's not necessarily the company I said earlier, so don't, whatever. Um, I'm just using them as an example, <laughs> but they had a dinner with menus printed that said, congratulations, Tyler and Glenn and big sandwich. Um, we had this dinner, you know, we got, I'm sure we got smashed the next day. That was a Thursday night. I'll never forget. The next day was Friday. We went in for more meetings and they're like going down the list with me of employees. Like we had like 20 or 30 employees. They're like, you need to fill this out. Who wants, a, who wants a MacBook? Who wants a PC station? Who wants a, a laptop versus a desktop? Like integration. This was the integration team, which um, for people not familiar, there's like the, the corp dev team, which handles the actual M&A, like the, the, the deal. And the integration team is like tasked to be like, let's, plug these people into the system, you know, how do they get their computers? How do they yeah. get payroll? Um, that was Friday. We fly back to Vancouver. We have a call Monday morning and they're like, yeah. Um, so we're not going to be proceeding anymore. 
And we're like, wow, what do you mean? Um, and that was exactly what they meant. Uh, it was the worst. It like, it's, what it's weird. It's not like, it, it was, yeah. I mean, it's like someone, cause it's worse. It's not even like, Hey, we took this money away or we took this job idea that you've gotten excited about cause you could do it. But it's also like, you're like, Oh shit, where does my next paycheck come from? Like, you know, and, and also like I all along, like I'm kind of a, well, most of my life I spent, you know, as a, as a grade A warrior, I've gotten better. Like I've gotten a little more chill as things go on, but, um, <laughs> but all along I was like, I'm not believing this till it happens. Like I'm not counting, you know, that my bank accounts can increase and that will have security and that. And I was also really excited about the opportunity to grow and build something big. This was back, back Tyler of a phase ago where I wanted to have like, maybe, maybe we could grow to have a 200 person studio. Um, <laughs> Uh, spoiler. Yeah, that's you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but all along, I just like, don't count your chickens till they're hatched. When I saw that menu that said, congratulations, Glenn and Tyler and big sandwich. I was like, this is done. I can't believe it's actually happening. Yeah. Um, no, it did not happen. <laughs> so I learned. Oh my God. Very... You must be the bit, you must be the bitterest, most skeptical person when it comes to BD now. <laughs> it was a, I mean, it wounded me for years. Um, now, in the fullness of time, things worked out, you know, uh, maybe better, yeah, better than yeah. ever, but like, it was a gut punch. Yeah, like you said. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what to do with it. And I was a pretty grouchy person for a while. And all yeah. my friends and family had to hear me complain endlessly for months. But um, as someone who's lived through similar kinds of situations and also seen people go through them, it is really difficult. A way that a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, Patrick, described this recently was that it's really hard to climb out of that hole. Once you get pushed down into a hole like that, it just, it kind of swallows all your confidence and your ability to believe that people are good. <laughs> like you have to really, really work to be grateful and to be compassionate and to mm. not just turn into a bitter pill because it's You're right. It's so much work because you'll be digging out and then something bad will happen and you'll just get right back down to that place of like, this is punishing me for a reason. Why does God hate me? You, know? you made a good point there that, yeah, you made a good point that I resonate with, which is that it affects your confidence, but also your view of people, you know? And so it's not just a one-sided thing where you're like, hey, you know, like someone did me wrong, but I'm good. like. And then all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, it, it's hard when you feel like you're maybe gaining momentum in your career and then all of a sudden you're like slapped down pretty hard, you know. Um, but I think the, I, I think what it taught me is like not like a don't trust anyone. It's just that we had no leverage there because like we were on our we were pretty close to our last dollar and they put us under a no shop, which is something where. They're like for for the for six months or the duration of our negotiations, you can't pursue new business. You can't. You yeah, know. that's effectively going to put you out of business if the deal goes south, and then they can always harvest your people too, which is yes. really cool. So I think I learned, you know, lessons like that, like don't put yourself under no shop, whatever. But I mean, the reality is like all these are good tenants to live by, but sometimes you don't you don't have the leverage and you got to just do it. But I think, um, you know, it's it's so funny because I was just giving a talk today about um, a concept that Brene Brown has called FFTs, fucking first times. <laughs> How as adults, when we start to get at, into our 30s, we start to think like, well, you know, I don't really want to try this because it's an FFT and I 
it just feels gross. Like I'm not really good at like say cycling. I don't really want to pick up a, a new hobby. Like, and you have to get your, your partner. Like, no, it'll be really fun. And we go on rides together and you're like, I don't know how to use a bike and to clip into it and all the weird gear. And it just makes me feel awkward. And nah, you, you go on the bike ride. I'll just stay on the treadmill or whatever. Right. And she sort of points out that when you're in an FFT, you start to feel weird about all the things that could go wrong. And if you don't name it and really hold space for how awkward and terrible it will feel, you can really end up punishing yourself when you're in it and you can't get out of it and suddenly things don't go well. And you have to really, every time you're in an FFT, you have to say to yourself, this is an FFT. I might fuck it up. It might, it might feel painful for a while. It might end up sucking. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But at least I know that I don't know enough to do it perfectly or to mm. know whether it's going to suck. So you can let yourself off the hook. But when you're, you're in a situation like this, you were in an FFT and you probably didn't have a huge network. And so you were just like kind of operating with the, light, the lights and the guidance that you had immediately around you. And that might not have been enough. I think that's actually in the fullness of time, as you say, you realize a lot of your career is FFTs and maybe you weren't so... <laughs> so aware of it <laughs> yeah and and sometimes you know and unfortunately the uh you know there's so many wonderful parts of game development but the stories of you know the the, the like something akin to what happened to me here would be canceled projects publishers withholding milestone payments and you know this unfortunately just you know has always been a part of game development it's just the business side and and sometimes there's really good reasons it, that later, you know, you can empathize with the other party. You're like, oh, I see what they were under. In this particular case, no, it was it was it was a, a guy pissing on his territory because he had just come in to take over a significant role at the company. I was he, just gonna ask, was he, it a new uh, hire? Because like 99 yes. of these particular bad stories are there was a new guy, and it's, it's almost always a guy. It, <laughs> he it just was shows up and makes everyone's life miserable. Yeah, because I. I remember like the, the our corp dev people that we were dealing with, like they wanted the deal to go through. I mean, they had just worked six months on it themselves, you know, so um, but they couldn't like you could just read between the lines that they're like, I'm sorry, but this guy is like pissing on this corner and he has 10 times the power we do. So we can't do anything, um, you know, and uh, it it was a learning experience. I mean, that's that's the bottom line, but it's. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, unfortunately, like, I think the resilience to get through these things, like canceled projects, like, it's it's pretty rare to find someone who's been in the industry very long who hasn't had a canceled project that they spent oh, years absolutely. of their life working yeah. on. So I'm not at all trying to sing a sob story. Um, but, you know, they're blows at the time. Yeah, like, I mean, my partner, Chris, um, like, before we started Red Hook, he... Um, he was on this high budget Pirates of the Caribbean game at uh, Propaganda up in uh, Propaganda, I think, in Vancouver. And he, he for three years, he, they, he worked on this or maybe almost four. And then they canceled it when it was like 90 percent done or 80 percent. So it's, you know, it's it's hard. But like part of unfortunately, I think part of game development is like learning to pick yourself up when, you know, hard business things happen, learning to pick yourself up when you make a crappy game, learning to pick yourself up when you're. You know, when when it's fear that like I think like and um, I'm sure it's the same in all the other arts, you know, like the blank page or just like the fear of facing your own like a great idea in your head and then you make it and it's OK, you know, but um, it's a game. It's a profession that takes a lot of resilience is, I guess, what I'll what I'll say. And I think maybe, though, the the um, the 
inspirational, I guess, side, I'll try to say is ultimately that resilience is most of the time just about whether you can pick yourself back up. I mean, obviously you yeah. can't control if someone's unable to pay you or whatever, but like, you know, um, it's kind of like that other, the other adage I was just saying about access to tools and something like when I, whenever I get a chance to say guest lecture or anything or speak on a podcast or whatever, I just try to like remind people that like, if, if you cut away all the noise, um, you could be sitting down, you know, writing a story tonight or working on a game. And yes, there's a lot of gatekeepers, but they aren't everywhere and they're not in your house, you know, other than of course, like, oh, my kid's crying or my dog is shitting on the carpet or whatever, <laughs> but, you know. Um, so. It's important. It's important to take that first step, I think, and also to to believe in yourself. It's really hard to believe in yourself when the systems around you tell you that you're not valuable or that, yeah, you know, we thought we would we'd give, make you all millionaires, but then you know, this one guy just decided no. Yeah. It just starts to feel really arbitrary. And I think we all love the, especially in game design, as game designers and system designers, we love the notion that we have control over things. And I think I certainly identify as a game designer because I've always felt outside of things as someone who's like not neurotypical and kind of in the middle mm -hmm. of the gender spectrum and like queer. And I always thought like, well, maybe if I can figure things out, then I can kind of fit in. And over time, that obsession with how things work became a big driver for my my interest in design and systems. That's cool. And so I think when bad things happen to you as as a game developer, and you're in that phase already where you're like, ah, I want to neener neener over these things, it can be even harder because you think to yourself, well, maybe I could have avoided it. I could have done something different. What if we had X or Y or you know? Mm -hmm. And that kind of thinking also is, I think, kind of a curse for people of our ilk, you know. <laughs> Yeah. With the way things go. So you eventually survived and became the Red Hook and the developers of Darkest Dungeon. And I can't help but think that in some ways, I mean, the very game itself is a little bit about picking yourself up and moving past failures that you couldn't possibly have survived without <laughs> experience. So in a way, That's maybe true. you made your you made your game development career into a game in some ways. Tell me it how you first met. Yes. Um, and there's one, there's one other little connective tissue that I have to say, which is after that deal fell through, um, a mobile games company came in and swooped and bought us. Uh, but for like a fraction of, you know, the other thing, but it was either go out of business or get bought. So, um, once again, we had no leverage, whatever, but I learned another lesson here and I'll make that quick. And then I swear this will get to the darkest dungeon stuff, which hopefully people care about. Um, <laughs> it's fine. But I know it's, it's, I'm sorry, but this company came in and bought us and the CEO had his vision for, they, they were like, had a couple successful um, mobile games and were making money. Like at that point they were printing money. Not like, not like a uh, candy crush style money, but you know, printing money. And um, they're like, cool, let's expand. Cause everyone, as soon as they start making money goes, let's quadruple our size, um, which is a terrible idea generally. But, you know, if you're trying to become the next, like they wanted to be Zynga or somebody, I don't know. Um, anyway, they bought us. Three months later, that CEO got deposed by the board and the new guy took over and he hated us from the beginning. <laughs> so anyway, um, I spent a year of my life making a mobile game that, you know, was very difficult and, um, you know, uh, I'm glad I stuck through, but it was the, one of the worst working years of my life, stress-wise, um, maybe the worst bar none, but the, without going into lots of detail there, 
that whole, like the first company that the deal fell through, then these guys buy us, then they have a strategy shift, which, you know, companies are entitled to do. Um, it's always a risk. Um, and all of a sudden that's when I was like, I can't take this more. And I go, and then my friend, Chris, so getting into the darkest dungeon stuff, Chris and I had worked together at backbone. Um, that's how we met. So like we first actually worked together on that Sonic game I'd mentioned and then on monster lab, and then we just became friends, but we went our, our separate ways and we always wanted to um, make something together. Cause he's, he's like a world-class artist and I'm a, um, I don't know, a sometimes okay game designer. And so we <laughs> like, humble. <laughs> well, I'm trying to figure out a lot of game problems right now. So it's easy to stay humble when you're banging your head against the wall. <laughs> yeah, um, but like, we had always wanted to work together because of complementary skills is the bottom line. Um, and, but our, our careers took us to different companies. Like, like I mentioned, he went to propaganda, worked on that game. You know, I went to the indie studio. Um, and all of a sudden we were both kind of at a point where we were like, like I had just come out of that thing and I had, um, I had no job right then, but I was like, okay, time to like start looking around. And he had just ended up like he was doing like concept art for like an internal pitch for Microsoft. Like he didn't work there, but he was doing contract art and that pitch didn't get greenlit. So he's like, well, shit, what do I do? And we're both like, finally, this is the time. Like we've been looking, this is the time. So that I think it's a really, um, I don't believe in destiny or anything like that. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not quite spiritual enough. May, I, I wish I was, I'm trying to get there. But, um, but I will say that like, it's interesting to play out. Like what if that first acquisition had gone through and it had gone well? What if the, like all these series of things that Red Hook could have never been, you know? Um, and even that horrible experience for the year before Red Hook, like that led me to Red Hook. And so it's, it's would I want to do it again? No, but I'm super grateful <laughs> for the threads, right? But yeah. at the same time, the threads didn't just happen and sweep you along. It was us looking at each other and going like, we're not getting any younger, like we better try this. And and so we, we, hit, we already had a loose idea for the game, um, basically because we would... Um, brainstorm games whenever we'd get together. Um, and we would like get together at least once a month for poker. And then um, usually another time a month just to hang out. And um, and so this this is the idea that had kind of like won the idea death match. Like every time we'd talk about ideas, this one would kind of like, oh, we could do this with it. Oh, we could do that with it. And so the key piece for us in starting Red Hook was um, that we, it was about the game. Like we had no no desire to make a company we're like the company won't matter unless the game matters and so it was 100 percent about the game um and so we we decided to kick that off in april of 2013 and um here we are the rest is history <laughs> i mean you're you're essentially contemporary with phenomena and our our trajectories were almost exactly the same so i was like you know after after i finished turning was like okay I want to, I don't want ever going to go through a production like that again. So I'm going to make my own company and see if I can build a company where that stuff doesn't happen. Right. Like where I can just try to have some freedom, um, which of course you realize long, longer down the road that it's hard to have freedom no matter, no matter where you are. Cause there's always, yeah. there's always some boogeyman somewhere, whether it's inside your head or an external pressure, you know, it's, it's actually that life is kind of just dealing with ups and downs and you know, it's 50, 50 any day, right? You roll the dice every day. So you're lucky if you get through the day with nothing bad happening on some level somewhere in your life. 
but um, you you really did. You just went for it. And like, did you did you guys build the prototype first? Did you keep it really tiny? And then like, did you learn from those lessons of those early successes like, <laughs> and stuff? Or did you just hire a bunch of people and get a budget and go for it? Um, uh, yes and no. So basically that that funny enough, the thing the thing you said earlier about, uh, you know, focusing on the art first is, is sometimes the wrong idea. Well, having a partner who's an amazing artist, we actually leaned into that side. Um, so I was I was basically building out the game systems, but meanwhile we cut a fake trailer um, of like how the game could work, um, and that was entirely like Flash and um, I don't know whatever artist tools back in the day people would animate with. I think it was Flash. I don't know. And then like After Effects, you know, things on there. So Chris worked on that as basically a previs, you know, but but taken to the point of how it could look. And we were helped by um, the fact that like, from the beginning, we're like, this is a small project. It's gonna be a few people, you know, he's gonna draw everything. I'm gonna design and potentially code everything. Um, so, you know, it, we didn't, we weren't trying to be like, look at these AAA level production values, you know, it was 2D art and that was really key because like, you know, we were only limited by what he could draw. We weren't limited by like tool set and rendering and all this shit. Um, so he worked on that basically that previous while I worked I started working on the systems and um, we didn't have any money except for our own savings which were just enough to like keep us going for a little like ourselves going for a little bit but definitely not enough to hire anyone. Um, so meanwhile we looked for very quickly realized that there's no way we could make this game the two of us even with the small scope that we were originally thinking. Um, so we found a programmer that I had worked with before who was willing to work for um, backend for royalty. Um, and that was very difficult, actually. Like we were entirely restricted to working with people that were willing to work for the chance of making money later. And I still think that is a really great way to bootstrap. Um, you know, it's but it does require people who have at least some savings. Um, and so, I mean, your own personal savings is is really important in terms of like, you don't have to be wealthy. Like I wasn't wealthy or anything, um, but giving yourself that freedom to like explore some ideas. Cause once again, gatekeepers, I mean, we tried to get some funding from the Canadian media fund. They rejected us. Um, you know, there was plenty of people who didn't think Dark's Dungeon might've been something, um, but we persevered and we made this previs video or trailer or fake trailer, whatever you want to call it. Previs is probably underselling it, but um but it did act as previs for us because then we built the game to function like it. <laughs> um, and we released that cold onto the interwebs in October of 2013. And our, our goal was always like, we need to generate interest. And if we can't generate interest and money, then you know we're not gonna be able to make this game. Um, and so that was our test to see like, do people give a care about this idea? Yeah. At that point we had already planned on, um, our strategy was to go to Kickstarter. So. We were very, you know, like the things that changed, like compared to when I first started making games, it's like now you had crowdfunding, digital distribution, the ability to self-publish. Like, so it's, it really is an amazing time to make games right now that I think is still kind of unprecedented. And I know it's hard and but it's like, when you've seen that other side, like you, you've seen as well, where you have to convince, you know, I guess you always have to convince someone somewhere, but Kickstarter was a great boon, you know, now, so it's hard to do video games on there. Well, it was a, it was a new platform. I think what mm -hmm. what was similar to, to Kickstarter is similar to where you know the Zynga Facebook games were, or where the Summer of Arcade sort of XBLA was. 
you know, it was a similar place to be at the time that you were getting ready to go out there, you know, Apple maybe was just starting to think about funding mobile titles and there were mm-hmm. some people that were getting great deals on Apple, but it was this, it, it was a new place to try where you could get a significant budget if you appealed, right? And there wasn't a lot of competition then. Yeah, it was neat. I remember like Banner Saga had done their campaign and blown it out of the water with like 700,000 and, um, or somewhere on there in Hyperlight Drifter. And, um, and so that was our strategy is to kind of build a pre-audience enough people that could then jump on Kickstarter day one. Cause kind of like Steam, Kickstarter is a momentum game. Like you, you can't, you can't make a game succeed if it's, if it's lousy, but you can try to play the momentum thing because people like to jump on once they know it's safe. So it's like, Oh, this project has a lot of people backing it. Okay. I'll take the chance. And that was our strategy. And it, it fortunately worked out. Like people really loved the trailer. Um, and then we built that, we built towards a Kickstarter campaign in February of 2014 and we got 300 grand, which was amazing beyond what we thought we'd get. Um, of course there's a side of you that's like, we only got half what, these other people get, you know, but no, but it was, it was really key that allowed us to pay a lot of out-of-pocket costs, you know, for people that didn't want to work for risk. And, um, that was really like, so instrumental in our, in the, in the, the in the game existing. I mean, that's the bottom yeah. line. It's like, it, so it thankful. Gives that, for kick, it gives you that faith that people want to see it. I mean, I think that one of those, those things that you take a hit on when someone cancels your game or doesn't buy your mm-hmm. studio or like, just poops your game out onto a store and then you never make any money on it. Like it's just, it's hard to feel like the juice, you know, mm-hmm. your battery doesn't get, you know, doesn't get filled up. Your tank doesn't get filled up by those experiences. It gets depleted. And if you don't have something that's like helping you feel wanted and seen, like it can be hard to really pick yourself up. So in a way it was a real pick me up for the two of you. I remember the trailer. I remember oh. all the buzz in the indie community <laughs> and it was going around the forums like wildfire and everyone was like, oh my gosh, look at these guys. It's going to be so cool. Sign up and get the game. So it was oh. definitely, it was definitely a, a groundbreaker in that space. And how long did it take you to make it? It was really fast. So we, so we literally had not a line of code written in April of 2013, um, the, the programmer we brought on had his own engine, a 2D engine. So, I mean, he brought that on, but there was no Darkest Dungeon code written at that point. And we showed it in PAX East in April of 2014. So a year to bring it to where we had a functional dungeon um, that people could play like hands-on at PAX. So Kickstarter was in February. So it was like nine months to get to Kickstarter with all these like animated GIFs and stuff, but no one could actually play it yet. And then April, we showed up for the first time and then we, we launched it into early access the following February. So basically a little under two years to get from enough zero to yeah. uh, early access, which blows my mind because like even darkest dungeon two, where we have a bigger team, um, took three, three years, I guess. So, you know, 50%, I mean, and you can't compare them. They're not the same because there's 3d art and, but, um, I do look back and it was an incredibly productive, grueling time, but we, we were so liberated. I mean, that's the thing, like, I guess the, all those stories of the things that happen, like as soon as you're in control of your own destiny, it's so liberating. And so there was no shortage of energy because we were, you know, we were on the ride of our life. We were just like, we want to make this, we get to make it. No one can tell us not to make it, they, you know, and we get to do what we want. And that was like super just like freeing. And when you have fans who are like clamoring to get it and like 
responding to all your updates. And like, I know it's a lot of work to manage a Kickstarter campaign and that there are, you know, the downsides of like having to deal with the community and having them wanting to have a say in your game. But as we go into live games and gaming as a service in general, like that's just is the way everyone's dealing with it. So it was a yeah, kind of precursor right. skill set. When you when you look back at the development, what do you think you learned in terms of game design? Like, because you're you we're really talking a lot about like your experience as like a developer and like when you owned your own company and you were in, in charge of the ship and then you were working in that space. Did it feel different to be doing your job as a systems designer? Did you, did you, I mean, it sounds like it was yeah. just that there was less drag on you emotionally. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, right? I had similar feelings at times on that horde game uh, where it's weird. It's like when there's, yeah, when there's less drag from process and less drag from gatekeepers, you can, you can just go, you know? And I think um, it was still scary. Like we didn't know whether it would be good. And, you know, we, we were like, oh gosh, people are excited, but they haven't played it. Like it's one thing to look at the art and be excited. Um, so there was still a ton of pressure and a lot of financial stress because um, like, you know, 300 grand a Kickstarter, once you take out all the cuts or whatever, you're left with maybe 250, but that was kind of earmarked for people that couldn't, you know? So like, I think we each took maybe like 25 grand a year for those two years, um, like the core five or maybe even less, which uh, I was, I mean, how old was I? I was 39, maybe like when you're 21, like 25 grand a year would be a lot. Like when you're, when you're 40, like it's, it's, it's not a ton, you know? So it's, yeah. um, there was a lot of pressure. And one yeah. of the guys, uh, one of the, uh, people on the team had, you know, was pulling out of his retirement account and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So we took that risk, but, um, sorry, that was like a, a detour, but no, but I think the freeing part was, just a few people in a room making a game, you know, which is just a really pure expression of creativity plus desire plus work ethic, you know, in terms of like nothing is happening. There's no team in the other room making stuff. Like if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And I think, you know, um, those of us that like built Darkest Dungeon 1, like we, that that's energizing to, I mean, for most people it is, but I think, um, some people maybe get paralyzed, but when, when you're that exposed, but I think for us, that's a powerful motivator, you know? Um, it, I mean, really, honestly, the freedom, I really identify with this notion of just like, well, we're charting our own course. And I mean, when I look back at the, at the times that I've spent pitching, raising money, organizing, yeah. hiring, having to downs, downsize because of cancellations, scaling back up, pivoting losing deals, having things canceled, all the things that I've gone through as a, as a founder, it's like, I know that I'm still in charge in the long run of the destiny. Like we can still sit down as a team and have a conversation about where we want to go as long as we're independent. And then like, when you get the opportunity to just get a period of time and work on a game, it's like such a joy. It really just is. Sit down yeah. and be creative, right? It's like, it's, it really is yeah. the juice. It's the, it's the best thing. It's not uncertainty in a bad way. It's like, you know, there's two kinds of stress, right? There's like you stress mm. and I forget what the other kind of stress is. And one is essentially the excitement that comes from wanting to do something really great or like finish something mm -hmm. or get it done in time. It's kind of the stress that you have when you play games. And the other kind is the feeling of like, oh shit, I have to like, you know, flight, <laughs> you know, fight or freeze. Right? Like that kind of stress is really destabilitating and yeah, destabilizing. 
and debilitating. I put them both those words together there for you. Yeah, debilitating. <laughs> it, it, it's not a good feeling, right? And so you you were in a period for a long time, especially like after that long year of mobile, where you're feeling kind of like, ugh, this is just not the kind of stress I want to deal with. And like the new stress of being uncertain in your own little robot, which you're you're piloting towards some little island of game design. Yeah, like having agency. I don't know, like we've always felt at least like if we're controlling what Darkest Dungeon is or Darkest Dungeon 2 or whatever, you know, um, you know, if the game doesn't end up great, like we we know that we tried it and it's weird. It's scary to know that you only have yourself to blame, but it's also freeing because like if you look at the, you know, if you try that on in the opposite foot or whatever and say, what if some random person high up just said, no, you can't have skeletons or whatever it is. No, you can't have stress in Darkest Dungeon. Like, you'd always be wondering, like, oh man, like, did they kill it? Like, if the game sucks, you know, did they? So yeah, having agency is, is just, yeah, it's so important. And I, I think um, I admire and have no idea how thousand-person game teams get anything done. I mean, you know, it's impressive to play something that is just so massive and then wonder, but like, I have no concept of how that is even possible because I, I... You need a lot of producers. I want like my hand, yeah, <laughs> I want my hands on the creation tool um, sometimes at least, you know, and that, because that's also like kind of the joy. I mean, I do take a lot of joy in the the business side and, you know, marketing and all this stuff, but but development is, is still like a, a true joy. And um, Chris has a funny like analog. I talk about Chris Barasa, my partner at Red Hook, because we, we co-president and he, he kind of game directs and I design direct. Anyway, um, the whole Red Hook story, the Darkest Dungeon story cannot be told without Chris. So I, I try to, uh, whenever we speak, we try to make sure to, uh, well, we don't even have to try. It's just natural. But what I was going to say is Chris Chris was a con- uh, like a contract artist before this. And he describes it as like, when, you, when you're like a, like the analogy would be like, a, you have to go out in the wilderness and like trap or, or hunt your own food. And like, once you're used to doing that, it's really weird to come back into the city and be like, whoa, there's like a snack bar. Like you can just eat whatever you want. Like, and so I kind of think like the Darkest Dungeon 1 experience was born out of that kind of that fear of like, if we don't catch our next meal, like we don't eat. And I think that that fear and that motivation is is, is still key to like, most creative, most creative endeavors need a deadline, right? So that's kind of like what a deadline sometimes does to you. Um, but I think like a combination of mania and fear uh, leads, can lead to good games. <laughs> this sounds very dark dungeon now. It's actually, it's interesting because I actually, I really do believe that you can make games in a joyful way. And I think it's, and I think that what we're, we're sort of circling around is this idea that like, if you have a strong idea and a team that's motivated to make it, even though you're maybe not going to do everything right and it is going to be stressful, that sense of freedom and destiny is really, it's really energizing. And like, it can be energizing even if it's scary. It can be energizing yeah. even if it's frustrating. Like I can remember many projects looking at them and thinking, oh, I can see it in my head. Why mm-hmm. can't I play it on the screen? Like how much longer is it going to take to get this prototype to the place where it feels juicy? What is going on with this particular system? And you feel mm-hmm. that kind of like tension in your body where it feels like you almost like your brain is exploding with pressure from all the ideas you want to put in the game but you can't because mm-hmm. you have to finish the systems and feel design and the specific thing yeah. and i hate that feeling but i love it so much more than slogging through a design that i'm not motivated about or 
trying to do contracts, <laughs> which I really hate. <laughs> you know, all all of the boring stuff that goes yes. with making a company work. Um, the feeling of being able to cross into that place of just like, okay, we got everything done and now we've got a year and a half or three years or five years to just go for it. That feeling is is so great. Even for me, oh, yeah, for sure. milestones associated with it. It's still, it's still great. Yeah. Like I actually think you need some structure um, and it's something we, we play with a lot at Red Hook in terms of kind of like playing with the pace a little bit because um, sometimes you need that structure and the, and like you said earlier, the constraints, I mean, that's so important to game design as a whole, but I think in um, product development too, you know, it's, it's so important because like sometimes like if you're left, if you're left with infinite money and infinite time, like you just might not even get something done. I mean, we've seen projects like this, you know, and it's not to say that they didn't, you know, each decision on any given day might not have been wrong, but as in the macro, it's wrong. And I think sometimes you literally need to be like, we have to decide right now, A or B, and just live with that. Okay, B, that's what we're doing, you know, and Yes, it's dangerous and scary, but like without those constraints, like you, you just noodle forever. I want to ask you a question actually specifically about systems design, because I've been talking with the team about this and, and internally there's that when you're, especially when you're innovating on systems, like you're building a game that maybe has like, let's say it's, it's like a, a pretty well-known genre, but you're trying to put some new systems in. Whenever you're building a new system, especially for something like controls or movement or fighting or whatever, there's a lot of ideas that come up in the space around how the system can work. And I think a lot of times teams get tempted mm. to run parallel prototypes. And my feeling is always that if you're working on a system design, you should only iterate on the systems design until you know how it feels. Because the minute that you add a parallel system, you're mm. bifurcating, you're kind of forking the thread and each thread has the potential to fork. And it, it becomes almost like you're standing on a surfboard that's been split down the middle. And like you just, the team can't, it's a really hard balancing act to stay afloat when you have multiple systems in progress. And I'm curious if you are, if you can, can confirm that theory for me, or if in fact, you're the kind of person that like works a little bit on the game in one space and then like switches over to a different system and then slowly cobbles them together. Cause I know those people exist, but they seem to me to be almost exclusively on mm. one or three person teams, right? Like somebody who's like a little bit of a nibbler. Are you like, do you build the system and then see it and then build another one on top of it? Or are you someone who explores across the board? I guess to the first part, when you were just saying about parallel tracks, um, a, a specific to maybe my career experiences, with the exception of Darkest Dungeon 2, I've only ever been on games that the budget is on fire and we're running out of time and money. <laughs> like I literally <laughs> have never, you know, even Darkest Dungeon 1 was that same way. Um, so I've never seen this um, luxury of parallel teams doing similar things. It's always been, we have to make this thing work. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm not saying that's healthy. Like that's actually, no, there's one example of a project when I was at Backbone where it was very well funded for a time. And we had lots of people working on different ideas around the same thing. It was a mess. And now I'm not saying that's exactly the reason it was a mess, but there was like 20. No, no, I, I'm just looking yeah, for confirmation yeah, that I'm totally right. So I, thank you for confirming so I think as my far theory. As, um, <laughs> You know, uh, trial A, trial B, and trial C are the same thing. Never happening parallel in my career. Um, if something doesn't work, then we retool and try. So it's always sequential. Um, but as far as me working on things, like, for example, Dark's Dungeon 1 is maybe a great e example because for a period, it was just three of us and I was the only one working on the game systems. Uh, well, I mean, Chris and I would talk talk about them, but I was, like, designing them out. 
Um, and so much progress needed made on every front that there was a little bit of hopping around, but it wasn't hopping around to do parallel instances of one idea. It's like, okay, work on the combat a bit. Okay, wait, think a little bit about items. Wait, okay, think a little bit about the Hamlet. Um, so by necessity, there's a little jumping around and I find that is usually helpful, like for me, systems-wise, because- um, yeah, yeah, and it helps feed burnout, like especially. your unconscious mind. So like when you're working on items, you might have a combat idea and vice versa. Um, and sometimes you can get stuck. Like I, I've, it's weird. It's like sometimes I find this with prototypes that I'm, I'm trying out. Um, you get myopic, and then you just get stuck, and you can't even think of where to go. But then you work on something else, and you know it's, it's a known phenomenon, I guess. But no, it's like I've never. And then on Dark Dungeon Two, we were well funded, but. Um, we think Chris and I think of ourselves as like snipers, not um, scatter gun or machine guns. So we try to really like think something through and like carefully line up the shot and take it. Now we miss all the time um, and then we will retool. But like, again, that's sequential, not like kind of running the three teams and see, see what, what shakes out. So, it, but that could just be like yeah. lack of my personal experience. You know, I've never had that luxury. I don't know. My, my personal theory is that when you have multiple teams cobbling together systems and they're kind of competing on how systems should work, or if you have a single person trying to support multiple prototypes um, to sort of have them battle it out, it ends up being so much wasted work. And then it's really good to do a sprint on a focus thing on a system and actually put some art and, and sound and, and you know music and stuff in it just to get this, just the basic sense of if it's juicy or not. And then if it's not working out, you can shelve it and work on something else you know is on the feature set. Um, I think that parallel systems processing for same problems is actually like one of the biggest holes that you can fall into in game development. And a lot of big games that ship, like if you look at something like, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, I know there are several examples um, at Blizzard where games were really big and they went a long time. They, they didn't actually ship, but pieces of those systems were cobbled together by someone else and made into a, a really great game, you know, relatively quickly. And when you do that, you know, you get better games. Yeah. Yeah. I admire the idea. Like, like I said, because I'd never had that experience, the idea of like investing a bunch and then canceling a game because it wasn't, didn't hit the quality bar. Like I actually admire when the company, like Blizzard that was able to do that, say like even going back with like Starcraft Ghost or whatever, um, and yeah, I, it is cool that though you may have learned something and carry that forward. And I think, well, you know, this isn't quite as relevant now, but back then, um, you know, the Blizzard brand was unimpeachable, um, you know, and I'm not slagging on Blizzard. I'm just saying like, so it made sense. Like they're like, we would rather kill this game than show a crack in our facade. You know, we only ship hits like, um, and that's, that's pretty rad, you know? And I think that like, we started to, um, you know, we've had to confront that sort of thing once we start Dark Dungeon 2 in terms of going, like, how do you follow it, a hit game, you know, because I had never in my career also worked on a sequel. Um, so this has been a new, you know, it's been kind of a new and exciting process for that, too, where um, following up something has its own set of challenges just because you're dealing with, like, perception and expectation and, you know, and, and stuff like that. So, um but yeah, I think like the luxury to kill something that's not working is, is, you know, something we should all uh, hope to be able to have the ability to do, you know, because it, it means you're successful <laughs> enough that you can do it and survive. Whereas, you know, 
a great many games have shipped because, you know, um, there were no alternatives, you know? Yeah. Did you enjoy the process of Darkest Dungeons 2 a different way because it was differently built because of out, without the pressure of just like the budget? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. The, that pressure went away, which is wonderful. Like, um, but in its place is the, you know, insane pressure of following a hit game. Um, that's not to say I'm not, I haven't enjoyed it. I'm just saying it's, it's different. It's like, I th- hearing you talk about like the lessons learned game development, or even just having to verbalize some of my past experiences. I think one of the most fascinating parts of game development is that you're continually learning new lessons. And sometimes you have to learn lessons you learned before. Like sometimes I'll, I'll like get out of a creative yeah. bot mode or whatever and be struggling to get back into it. And then I'll get back into it because, you know, I go to a coffee shop or I do a thing and they'll be like, wait, that's what I used to do all the time. I used to always write in my notebook or always go to coffee shops or like think on the bus or whatever it is. And so I think um, the reason that's kind of relevant to DB2 is just that like we, we um, because we staffed up and all these other things, like we couldn't follow exactly the same process of Darkest Dungeon 1. And even if we stayed small, like I don't even know if following that exact process would have worked. And so I kind of have this, um, view on everything from project management to process to development techniques that there is no one right way and that it really varies with your team and your project and your current circumstance and maybe your headspace. And this may be wrong, by the way, like all the, all the hardcore, like project managers might be out there. No, actually there was a guy a long time ago called the Buddha that said <laughs> there's no one way because there's nothing is the same from one moment to the next. So I think the, I think you're on to something. I, yeah. So I think like, <laughs> so we're doing something interesting on DD2 right now where like, so we came out on early access in October and then we just released a roadmap to the community a couple of weeks ago of kind of like our general plan. Um, and we're like the milestones are not equivalent length. We haven't told everyone exactly how long they are, but we, we've included some variation, like kind of a smaller one, a bigger one, a smaller one, a bigger one, or maybe two bigger, like um, based on features or whatever. And even that I think like is kind of cool because like um, it makes you think about it differently. It makes you frame differently. And you can be like, okay, for this milestone, you know, we're trying to do like low risk things, but this one has more time and maybe we can get into the big stuff. Um, but I feel like, it, I don't know. Um, one of the things I love and hate the most about game development is just that it, it punishes complacency and punishes um, so that's good really. Right. But what it means is you can never relax, <laughs> not really, but, um, you always have to be learning. And I think the minute that you're like, so in our case, for example, if we said, Hey, we made a hit game. Now we know how to make hit games. Like that's really like bad. I think for the process, I think. Well, you have to acknowledge that the next game is an FFT that's in some it, ways, yeah. like you just said, right. We stepped up, we have a different funding situation than we did. We have a game to follow, which has expectations. So we have to mm-hmm. adjust to the user expectations for our fans. And on top of that, we want to innovate. So we weren't like trying to innovate on something else when we made the first game, right? We were just trying to get mm-hmm. a game done under our own free will. You know? So that's like, you're already in an FFT when you're designing right. a sequel, even yeah. though it's a sequel. It's counterintuitive, right. I mean, but it's totally yes, true. That- and then like, not relax really like what you really mean is you have to be in a learning mindset you can't just like sit back and think like oh i got this now because everything has changed i mean for one thing you're releasing a game into a completely different marketplace because of the pandemic and 
everyone's been getting bought. So I'm sure you guys are getting all kinds of calls. <laughs> you know, you're in a consolidation phase. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening right now around you as a game development team that weren't even happening when you guys were starting. And in some ways you have the luxury of being an artist yes, back that, then. That's well said. Like everything is watched and, um, you know, you, I remember, you know, it's funny, I'd mentioned Jamie from Clay earlier, but I remember one time, like when we were just spooling up Dark's Dungeon, we were trying to figure out how to get it noticed. And it's like, well, how do you market your games? It's like, well, I just tweet that we're making a new one. And then that's all the press sites pick it up. And I, and I remember Jamie thinking like, Jay. can you imagine? Like, cause I was going through and scraping the bylines from all the, um, Articles like if someone reviewed at IGN, if they reviewed a strategy game that I thought might fall in the same, I would scrape their bylines and add them to a hand manufactured press list, you know. Um, and then now we are in a position that we can tweet something and it gets picked up, and that's not lost on us at all. And it's 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 definitely a huge advantage. Um, but yeah, it's hard to like you can't be as like. Um, you just have to be very careful with your communication. Because, you know, over 5 million people have bought Dark Dungeon 1 now. So if we just offhandedly throw something out there, like, it could lead to a huge firestorm, you know, or or, or misplaced expectations or, you know, whatever. But um, but I want to, I wanna though, close the loop because you said, like, how's enjoyment? Like, no, it has been good. It's different. It's like, and I think for me personally that the times, say, like, during development that I start feeling the most dissatisfied is when I haven't touched or built something myself. So... I, you know, um, have to be careful that like as a co-founder of the company that I don't get sucked only into administrative because um, that's not where the passion comes from, even though it's interesting and can be, you know, some of the work is interesting. Like I actually like making budgets and cash flow forecasts and things, but because it's numbers. Um, but no, like the happiest time of development for me is always like. I just went in a file and I changed the number and that's going to go live tomorrow. Like that, that still is, is, is fun. Yeah. I would have to say that I feel the same way. And I think it's, um, what's great about being able to talk to you about all this is that it's really clear that you're passionate about systems and that you are also capable of thinking about the way the business works and that you've experienced enough in the business that you understand that like the opportunities that you have are really special and you're trying to make the most of them. And I guess, you know, to close it out, I would just ask you like, what would be if you could go back and give, you know, you know, young Tyler <laughs> advice about this journey? Like, what would you have, what would you have said to them then? You know, like, let's say when you were first starting at Backbone, you know, what what would be the one thing that you would sort of say? Like, you know, definitely this is this will be valuable to you throughout this journey, because even if the context mm -hmm. has changed, I think a lot for a lot of young developers who do listen to this podcast for inspiration, like they're looking for those little nugs of like, what is, what is valuable? You know, what did you take away from that time hmm. you would share with them or a younger version of yourself? I think like the through line of maybe the, um, maybe there's two things. Um, one of them is distinguish between what you truly love doing and what you want to love doing. And, and the example I'll give is um, I thought I wanted to be a writer um, and I wrote some stories and I wrote a screenplay and I had a couple of stories published and whatever. And I realized that I liked the process of have writ having written, but I didn't actually like the process of writing was harder. Whereas say with game design and systems design, I truly love the process. Um, and I think that you have to challenge, um, sometimes it's worth challenging your own identity and ego and, and going like, what do I actually love versus what I kind of want to be 
you know, celebrated for and focus on the thing you love doing, because that's, that's where it's easier to get the energy. I mean, all this stuff takes energy, but, um, you know, and it's okay to change. Like tomorrow I may decide I want to be a writer again, and that's okay. Like there's no one stopping me. Um, and so I think the other, the other side is just like, um, so I probably would tell myself like, take a breath and think about what you truly love. And like, that was true with my career where like, you know, it turns out I'm happier making games than making airplanes. Um, and then even within games, you know, there's, I find it freeing to accept the things that I'm not as good at. Like I'm not a good level designer. Um, I don't want to be a good level designer, but once I free myself up from that, I can focus on the things I love. Um, so I think it's okay to like, uh, like maybe like recognize your weaknesses and focus on your strengths, like, which seems obvious, but I think sometimes our, our own self identities get in the way of that. Um, and then the other thing, which I am fortunate that I guess I knew back then too, but, um, I was just more nervous about it is just resilience. Like, you know, we talked on this podcast about a couple setbacks, but you know, uh, there was always going to be setbacks and even it's weird with dark dungeon, dark dungeon two, there are setbacks. We can't talk about them as much cause there's, you know, no one wants to hear our, our violin story because you know, we're, it's a <laughs> successful game, but, oh but you know God, how it is like, um, <laughs> you know, game moments hard. And even when you've, you're, you're say like being, you know, you're successful on some level, it's not without its challenges. And I would just say that, um, you can learn skills, you can get better at things. Um, but resilience is what will get you there. Like your own persistence, um, at like having doors shut in your face. Like I, I literally like don't know how many resumes I sent out and I had a couple, you know, um, interviews, like maybe two or three phone interviews and one in-person interview out of, over like three years and they all rejected me and I didn't get a job from any of them. And, you know, I was ready to give up on the dream. Um, but then fortunately I was too stubborn to quit. And I, yeah. so I think that that will always serve people <laughs> well because, um, if you're obsessed with like making it by next year or by the two years or by the time you're 30 or 25 or, or 35 or 40, I love. Yeah. You want to be in the 30 uh, under 30. That's my favorite thing. I'm like, when I was under 30, like I was literally like eating spaghetti out of the box and like rock climbing all the time and reading books. Like I didn't even have sounds like a good life though, actually. It was pretty bad, <laughs> but it definitely wasn't 30 yeah, under 30. <laughs> Robin wrote an entire dynamic difficulty system for oh, Half-Life yeah. that no one's ever played. Like, yeah, no, it's kind of a waste of time. But it wasn't a waste of time. Like you said, in the fullness of time, it was exactly what it needed to be doing. So, yeah, I hear you. Don't don't pressure yourself, right? Like, just, be, just advocate for yourself. We call this self-advocacy now. Having the pressure that you want to make something yourself is, is good fuel. That's good rocket fuel. Um, if it gets to the point where you're like, oh, fuck, I thought I'd be so much further by now, I might as well quit. Like, that's where it is, is corrosive. And I think that, like, um, you know, there was definitely a lot of days that I, I never thought I would I would be a published game designer or a public, you know, and, um, you know, I'm grateful now. But, like, I could have quit at any one of those moments. And, you know, you can quit for a while. It's okay. Like, life happens. Um, but then... Um, yeah. So I think the persistence and then, oh yeah. Like I was just going to say to that end on the timing, like I love reading stories about people that like fully blossom when they're whatever random age you want to say, you know, could have been like New York time bestseller at age 65, you know, or like, and I think that, um, 
that's important to remember, like the stories, like I love reading biographies now because like it really gets to the story and not the synopsis. Like, you know, if you spend all your time on Twitter and social media, you will believe very like simplified versions of life. And I think it's really helpful yeah. and I find inspiring to remember that, hey, not everybody you know, makes it at age 21 or like, you know, not everyone has a brother who just works at a game company who needs a game designer. And then you get hired with zero skills. Like, you know, sometimes you got to do it the hard way and, and maybe that's okay. <laughs> I really, really appreciate you taking this time and talk to us. You are so, so smart and so talented, so capable and clearly you care so much about games. And I am excited to see what you do next. Um, I know you won't be making any announcements anytime soon, but when you do, please come back to the podcast and talk, talk to us about it, okay? It was super fun. It's um, a great time to just take a moment away from development and remember kind of like why and how. And, and so I really appreciate it because these things like help me restore perspective as well. Yeah, no, you're a total champion. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.